That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Trigger warning. The following episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and adult language. Viewer discretion is advised. I'm Danielle. I'm Max. And each Wednesday, we crack open a bottle of wine and dive into some thrills, chills, and spills. This is Innocent Till Tipsy. Hi, welcome back. So uh, we had just left off with Andy Hale, who is the lawyer for Chester Weger from the Star of Rock Murders. Um, this is a new HBO docu-series um, that's out now, which you can definitely binge if you would like, um, on HBO Max. Um, and him and his uh, co-host Whitney Braun, they have a podcast all of their own, which is just a wealth of information. We wanted to have them on our show um, as soon as we heard about this case, so Andy and Whitney's podcast is called The Starved Rock Murders with Andy Hale. It's airing every Thursday. We're going to kind of pick up where we left off with part um, two, where we were doing our questioning with them. So if you haven't watched um, that interview with them, make sure you go back um, and check it out, or you're going to be totally lost for this. And definitely make sure you check out at least our first part, if not their podcast beforehand, so that you kind of have a idea of what what we're talking about with this case, because this is something you definitely, you need to look at the series for. Um, but yeah, and we're still drinking uncaged, right, Max? We are still working on this. It is velvety smooth, cherries, berries, and milk chocolate. So excellent. Stick around to the end of the episode if you want to find out how you can also help people that have been wrongfully convicted. Um, but we'll get back to the interview right now. One of the things I will say about this entire Starved Rock saga, and I'm going to call it Starved Rock Saga because because it's, you know, to just say Chester Weger, to just say the victims' names is, is too limiting. It is an incredibly incestuous story. It's just like every time you start to put together a timeline and you start putting names in, you're like, wait a second, I know I've seen that name before. Wait a second, that is the mother-in-law of this person. Wait, that person lived next door to this person. It's so incestuous that it makes it, um, it, it makes it one of these things where it's like, I feel like in this case, when the DNA does come back, I will not be shocked by anything that comes back because I can see so many plausible connections between so many different characters revolving around this, this saga. Yeah, it's hard to decide if you put that in like the lead pile or the coincidence pile. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's there's all sorts of like other, you know, coincidences that, you know, that, that we could sort of, you know, go into into agonizing detail over. But I mean, I think for me, one of the other things that's very troubling about um, the way in which Chester ends up, you know, going on trial and then going away to prison is, is just the, the casual nature of utilizing people in the town to do the work of like getting the local grocer to sign the warrant for his arrest. Like it just, it's a very casual incestuous relationship within this community. Um, and yeah, I, I could go on for days about it. <laughs> on that note, I have questions. <laughs> Okay, because you just mentioned like the community and we're like the barber that's called into question about is he able to alibi Chester or not? Can we talk about Sandra Bland or Sandra Houseby? How is she part of this? And uh, I mean, I I just took out like a couple snippets. She's she says that. Uh, let's see, Stanley tells her right. Why would Stanley be telling her that he with these details if he's friends with Chester? Yeah. Or so do you want me to do that one, Andy, or do you want to take it? Well, I'll, I'll start and I'll let you take over. Sure. Um, you know, when I got involved, you know, in talking to the family and Chester's Chester and his family, you know, there's all these locals. Everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got some kind of a story. Um, and I, I took all those kind of very like cautiously. Right. Like, you know, it's like I'm, I'm willing to listen to anybody. Right. I mean, I don't rule out anything. If you told me. Uh, you know, any, I, I'm, I think anything is potentially true. Um, but when I talked to Sandra Bland and she told the whole story about having this conversation with Chess, uh, Stanley Tucker outside the Robin Hood restaurant, I will say this, she told it 
in a very matter of fact way. I mean, I've got the recording. I taped the phone call. Um, it just was told in a very like, let me just tell you, you know, what happened. And then, you know, not really embellished, just kind of matter of fact. Uh, but I agree with you. It seems weird. Like, why would Stanley Tucker be telling her this? Um, why would he be having that conversation with her? They're not like best buddies. Um, so, yeah, it's it's kind of strange. Uh, all I can say is when I went back and listened to it again, you know, it's not like you listen to you like, oh, well, this lady's crazy. You know, this this is just like she's making. I mean, it just it's it's told in a very calm, deliberate way. And Whitney, I'll pass it over to you for more yeah. on that. So I have to admit the first time that I heard uh, Sandra Housby's story. So just some context, Sandra Housby, if you're not familiar with the story, uh, Sandra Housby Bland was a 16 year old girl living in LaSalle uh, in 1960. Um, She was a waitress at the Robin Hood, which was like the local malt shop where all the kids would come and hang out. And her story is that late at night when she was kind of closing up and cleaning up the place, Stanley Tucker and his then girlfriend, Marion, pull up and then have a conversation with uh, Stanley's brother, Wayne, and his girlfriend, and Sandra is just sort of there. So it's not that Stanley tells Sandra, it's just she happens to be there in this sort of you know circle of, of young people outside the Robin Hood, and he tells this impassioned tale of how he feels so guilty that you know he's basically um, putting this on Chester and he's getting away. When I heard the story the first time, my thought was just, you know, to be skeptical. And so one of the things she starts, she mentioned, you know, just you start doing initial fact checking. She, she said, when she was told this information, she immediately went and told local law enforcement in the form of the local beat cop named Huzzy Petlin. And that's not a name you forget. And so I was like, well, who's Huzzy Petlin? So I searched him. Uh, and there, Huzzy was a nickname. He was Harold Petlin, but he was the local beat cop. And her story was that when he was informed of this when she told him, even though he'd normally been nice to her, he said, if you mention this again, you're going to get beat. Don't ever talk about it again. So at least, okay, so at least her first part of her story checks out that Huzzy Petlin was a real guy because it sounds like a ridiculous name, right? Um, Then she mentioned something else that initially made me, I mean, kind of embarrassed to admit this, it initially made me kind of uh, dismiss her story to a certain extent as being sort of fanciful, uh, and she said, you know, Chester had a cousin named Danny Ray Weger, and he was looking into this, and then they found him hanging off Route uh, Route 73. Uh, and it just, it sounded a little gossipy, and I thought, well, that's not true. And so late one night, I'm, I'm cruising the internet researching, and sure enough, about nine and a half years after Chester went away, his cousin Danny Ray Weger, who was then 29 years old, was found hanging um, near the Vermilion River from a tree. Now, the the father and son that found him immediately said that's Dan Ray hanging from the tree. When the police came and cut him down and then he was buried, the medical examiner identified 29-year-old Danny Ray Weaker, who is looks very much like Chester, right? You would not mistake a 29-year-old Caucasian male for what the medical examiner mistook him for, which was an elderly African-American. So Danny Ray Weaker is buried as unidentified African-American male or black man, they, they use the term. They actually, oh. I think the term was Negro at the time, but they, they miscite the coroner misidentified him as an African-American elderly male, which I don't know how you make that mistake. Well, you don't. Then, you don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To Andy's point, you don't. So then shortly thereafter, because the father and son that had found him told people at the barbershop, hey, that was Danny Ray. That got back to the Uyghur family who requested an exhumation and because of a pin found in the knee of the body, they were able to, to positively identify it as that was Danny Ray who had a knee surgery. So we get back into this- Excellent sort of research, weird... Whitney, excellent research. <laughs> Thanks. You get into this weird morass, right? Of like some of the things that Sandra Bland, you know, said at first, at first blush, when I heard her story, I went, oh, that sounds ridiculous and fanciful because they seem too egregious, too outrageous to be true. But enough of her story fact checks um, that it then, you know, it's, it's very hard to be dismissive of something where it's, it's factually, you know, uh, verifiable. I, I just had a couple of quick questions about her statement. So that's what I was getting at was when she said, I think it's in your recorded call with her, Andy, where she's saying it to you, it was him, meaning Stanley and George Spiro, something went wrong to Whitney's point in, in, in the podcast, 
it doesn't sound like George had many friends. So like, how was he, how was Sandra saying that it was Stanley and George when they're not close friends, Stanley's close friends with Chester. Yeah. I don't, I don't think Whitney, remind me in the call, does she say George Spiros? I can't yeah. Remember. She pronounces it does Spiros. She, she keeps okay. saying, you know, it, okay. was, it was George Spiros. And okay. um, so I, I've spoken to her uh, and, and she has said this to other people as well. So it's, 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 it's a story she has repeated and, and stuck to. Okay. Um, that George didn't have a lot of friends, but it's a very small town. So there's, there is a familiarity between all of these people and George did, according to Sandra, oftentimes try to win friends through the influence of, um, you know, uh, of his father, you know, he would give people nice things, nice gifts, you know, here, why don't you have this? So she said, the other thing that she said is that George was, now I'm paraphrasing here, people in the town use a far more derogatory terms, but I'm going to paraphrase and say, George Spiros exemplify, or George Spiros seemed to display behaviors that might be consistent with someone on the spectrum, let's put it that way. He seemed to have some social awkwardness um, that he often apparently tried to make up for by um, going along with dares from the other boys. And so the stories go in the town, Stanley Tucker, and this is what Sandra Bland said, Stanley Tucker would frequently dare George to do things for shock value, like, hey, eat that bug, or hey, do this, hey, do that. Now, what would put Stanley and George out in the woods together? I don't know, but they did know each other. Um, and, and there was another rumor in town that I can't substantiate it, but that people that worked at the lodge like George, like, I'm sorry, excuse me, like Stanley, like Chester, who would have been not exactly the same age, but around the same age as George, frequently got things from him because he wanted to make friends. And so he'd be like, here's a nice sweater. And so one of the rumors in town cannot substantiate it is that Chester's relatively nice clothes, like he looks very much like James Dean in a lot of those pictures, were gifts from George. I never heard that. Oh, that I yes. can't substantiate it. I can't substantiate it. I mean, there's no proof. It's just rumor. It's just the rumor mm. mill in town is that Stanley had a pretty decent car. I don't, I don't remember Chester ever having nice clothes either. So. Well, he just, yeah. he has a very I nice. I mean, at trial, you know, I mean, that's yeah. different. You know, you're going to get, you're going to get gussied up for trial. Well, what people are referring to is that uh, he was, um, you know, when, we, when he filmed the supposed reenactment of how he, how he committed these crimes, he had a pretty nice white sweater. Um, well, he, and you know what he said on. about that? He's, he's saying that Stanley Tucker's jacket is what he said about that. Mm. I think is what he okay. said. Yeah. There's yeah. some facts here. And I think that's what Danielle was about to ask was in that letter that I think, um, let's see, David produces for you to read. And we're asking Chester many, many years later, did you write this letter? Do you remember that? Are you covering for someone? He says, no, he's not covering for someone. I was wondering, yeah, like to put together that triangle of who is friends with who, because he's saying, Chester is saying that Stanley is like a brother to him. He's his friend. I guess that's where I was like, well, then how does George fit into this friendship? And you just explained that, gave us more context. So, Yeah. And too, with that letter, like um, that was presented to you, it, as I'm watching the documentary, my heart kind of sinks because he says he didn't write that letter, but it also shows like you're talking about the incestuous nature of this case, how there's so many different players that are involved with it. It does seem very likely that it could have been a case where a man went to prison for something he didn't do because he is trying to protect his family. Now we've got one of his family members has been strung up, you know, murdered, like for, for what though? Like, well, can I get into yeah. that a little deeper real quick? Yeah. So yeah. I actually, we're going to talk about this in another podcast episode too. Mm -hmm. We had an interview with uh, Sandra Bland's brother. It's her brother, right? Ken Whitney. Is it the husband. Brother? That's her husband. Oh, it's her husband. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. She so was Sandra Housby. Okay. He was friends with Danny Ray Weger and, and he just like her very matter of factly tells a story about how Danny was telling him, that he was looking into Chester's case. He was making progress. He was getting more information on it. And he was going to be going to Chicago to talk to some people about it and get more information about it. And then he winds up, you know, dying and uh, getting found hung. So there's there's some a lot more intriguing background and context to what he was doing. You know, what Ken Bland says is that, you know, Danny was actively 
trying to investigate the case to find out who did it. And then he mysteriously is killed. So it's even weirder. It's tricky because everybody you ask in this town, right, has a story. And and you will literally sit in the diner and you can ask the person to your right, what's your version of the story? And then you turn and ask the person on their left and they will be diametrically opposed. Because if you ask some people, it's, oh, Danny Ray was suicidal. So that was just the natural you know, that was the natural progression. He was suicidal. He was going through a rough patch in his life. And so he, you know, he took his own life, which I mean, people suffer tremendous mental health issues and I never want to trivialize or minimize that, but then that cannot be dismissed when you then take into account, he was misidentified as an elderly black man. Yeah. You know, so, so, so I think, you know, you, everybody's got a different version of the story and there's plausibility, all these different stories, but then you, I think you have to then look at what's the next fact, because that little next fact in the sequence of events can come, you know, that, that to me is what ends up swaying me. Sort of you know, let me, let me say one thing now, this is a good point to make this point. This is why I always start with the forensics. This is why I want to do DNA testing because I could spend five more years going down every one of these rabbit holes, Sandra Bland, Danny Ray Weger, George Spiros, Gerald Nemke, a truck driver, a pervert from the mental institution. It can't all be true, right? Yeah. I mean, they can't all be the killers. And so I always try to start with the forensics. And I, and in this case, I'm never going to convince anybody that Chester's innocent based on what anybody says verbally, whether it's Chester, his sister, Anybody alive today could say anything supporting his innocence. It wouldn't prove it, right? It wouldn't prove the case. And that is why I, you know, try to say, hey, what physical evidence do we have? Let's look at it and let's test it. And let's forensically try to get some answers because all these stories, I mean, they're all interesting. Um, But at the end of the day, how do you untangle it? It's just a huge ball of yarn. Oh, for sure. And like to that point, our country is supposed to be innocent until proven guilty. And that doesn't seem to be what was kind of done here at all. Almost seems like a man was kind of railroaded. Um, so, Can I make a point about that too? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm jumping all over the place. No, but this is what gets, this is one of the things I, I talk about a lot now. You know, a prosecutor's job is to seek justice. It is not merely to convict. It's to seek justice. So the police will do an investigation and they'll turn over the results to a state's attorney. The state's attorney, they're not, they're not mandated to like, okay, I've got to now convict this person. They're like the stopgate. They're like, okay, let me take a look at it. You know, uh, let me take a look at it and see if it makes sense. So basically what you have is you've got a confession that the state has admitted was under circumstances that mentally could lead to, you know, coercion and duress. You know, Tony Reculli, I think he says that if he didn't say it in the HBO doc, he says it in a videotaped legal conference that was done. Um, He's talking about a murder weapon that, you know, couldn't have been the murder weapon. He's telling a story about a botched robbery that makes no sense with the victims attacking him when nothing was taken from them. And all these things that don't add up, the state's attorney's job is to take a time out and say, wait a minute, you know, does this really add up? But instead, oftentimes, and it still happens today, it is st- some state's attorneys look at their job as as their job is to convict. Yeah, I'm going to get a conviction. That's what I'm here for. I'm playing to win. And, you know, until state's attorneys start understanding their job is to seek justice, that's that's what we really need. More state's attorneys understanding what their role is. Well, and can we add in the additional layers, too, of Warren? Like, they make the case for this in the documentary. It's Warren's election year. He's like, oh, I wasn't going to get a confession until after the election because I didn't want it to seem like that's that was, like, why right. winning. But then he takes the reward money. <laughs> I'm like, I mean, I how, how outrageous is that? That yeah. all these guys, this Harlan Warren, Bill Dummett, all split the reward money. I mean... When I heard that, I could not believe it. And Whitney, you know all the details about that. Was- yeah. So so anyone who's watching or listening to this uh, that's not familiar, um, there was a, a substantial cash reward of $5,000 initially put up by uh, by Nick Spiros, the, 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 the owner of the lodge. 
that money grew, that pot ends up growing to just around $36,000, which is enormous in 1960 central Illinois, right? Um, money is added into the pot by the businesses where the, uh, the women's husbands worked. So it grows into this, this war chest that is promised to the prosecutor and other key players upon successful conviction. So there are even, even the polygraph examiner. Yes. Yeah, so Steve got some Kindig, of it. <laughs> so Steve Kindig, who was the assistant to John. Great Reed, job, polygraph examiner. Yeah. You get some money yeah. too. So he got money. Harlan Warren got money. The two detectives got money. Um, you know, Dummett and Hess. Then women who saw someone who might have kind of looked like Chester commit a completely different crime, a, a purse theft in a nearby state park, they also got money. So it, it, it's just, it's, it's so upsetting. And it's just such a, you know, I'm an ethics professor. It's just, it's such an ethics violation uh, for these gentlemen to have taken that money. And I think, I think again, when you, when you just look at, at the, the chronology, the, right, the sequence of events, I think you can see very clearly that Starve Rock and its surrounding area depended on tourism. This murder happened and everything, the well goes dry, right? People are panicked. They're not gonna go camping in these woods. They cancel their trips. The economy dries up because nobody wants to come there. The local law enforcement doesn't look like idiots because they can't close the case. These are prominent women. So, so nobody wants to have egg on their face because this murder's left unsolved. And so as the months go on and they cannot figure out who did this, or I think they thought George Sparrows did it, whether they could prove it or not. So nobody wanted to point the finger at him because nobody wants to point the finger at the guy whose dad runs the town. Yeah. Right. And so I think basically the months went on and, um, you know, this case turns into a situation where it's like, we have to solve it. We need to, we need to hang this on someone. We need to get money flowing back in the community and everybody needs to sleep at night. And, oh, there's Chester. He's convenient. And maybe he did do it and maybe he didn't. And I'm okay with sleeping at night, just thinking he might've done it. I'm speaking, you know, paraphrasing as though I'm one of the, the investigators at the time, which I think is then what led to a very weird choice of Reculia, right? So Anthony Reculia at 26 years old, 15 seconds out of law school is appointed the prosecutor to represent the state in the trial of the century. And I also think it's interesting, his dad was the alderman for the area. And I think it was like, well, who can we trust to bring this home? Boy Scout Reculia, right? Because he will, he will get this done, even if there are questions of ethics, that will not bother him. And so he will, he will hammer this home. Let me say one other thing, too, which I think would have been a game changer maybe uh, today. You know, today, 2022, we understand as a society that the concept of false confessions, we understand it is real. People sometimes falsely confess. You know, it's easy to sit there and I'll give you an example. There was a case in Chicago. Uh, Google Kevin Fox and his daughter, Riley Fox. Um, his mom's out of town. His wife's out of town at a breast cancer event. Uh, he's home alone with his two kids. He wakes up in the morning. His daughter is gone. She's like five. Um, he winds up confessing to killing her and sexually assaulting her. Uh, and he later will say, I just had to end this interrogation. Like I just, I just, I just, I just had to end it. I knew I could kind of hope I could disprove it. And later on, years later, they found through DNA, they found this little girl's shoes by a river. They found the real killer. Okay. My point is it's easy to sit at home in your living room and say, well, I would never confess to killing my daughter. It's like, well, you know what? You don't know what you might do until you're in that situation. And in our murder in the park, Al Story Simon in our documentary makes that very same point. He says, you don't know what you'll do. So my point is in 1960, I think everybody looked at it like he confessed. It was yeah. just checkmate. It was game over. He confessed, you know, uh, whereas today, I think people at least would pause and say like, okay, he confessed. That's a, that's, that's something we got to consider, but we're also going to consider, are there circumstances and factors that could lead to a false confession, like threats of death, mental coercion, you know, uh, all these other things. Uh, and so back in 1960, people weren't as aware of that. But what's interesting is he didn't get the death penalty. And 
you know, one of the things when I got involved in the case, when I read that first newspaper article about Chester Wigger, there was an interview with Nancy Porter, who was the one surviving juror alive at the time, who was in her 90s at the time, who said she always kind of, I think, you know, doubted or wondered about her guilty verdict. And, you know, the jury did not impose the death penalty in a case like this. So I always felt like, wow, there were some real doubts on that jury, despite the confession. You know, there was some real doubt on that jury not to give him the death penalty and for Nancy Porter to make the comments that she said all throughout her life. Yeah. Can we talk about that confession, too, by the way? Because I think didn't he recant 24 hours later? Yeah. As soon Um, as he was assigned a public defender, he wound up saying the confession was all a lie. It's within days. I mean, I've got newspaper mm -hmm. articles about this, you know, and that's typically what you see, you know, Um, and it'd be different if here, you know, like the the leading factor in false confessions uh, is threats of death. You know, that's that is a key one. And it is present here, not only on that ride back from Chicago in September, but also Chester says that happened back in November when he was getting interrogated again, telling him he's going to get the electric chair if, you know, he doesn't confess. And you cannot underestimate, you know, the power of wanting to save your own life. In fact, it's in the, uh, the little audio clip that we play. I think it's in the start of episode one where they ask him about the confession. He says, I thought I was trying, I thought I was saving my life when I did it, you know? Can we talk about the polygraphs? Did Because one thing that you just pointed out that I had no idea about that Steve Kinde got some of the reward money. He's the polygrapher, right? How many, how many um, polygraph tests did um, he go through before he confessed? Because from the timeline I could put together, did he confess finally when they took him to Chicago or was it before oh, the earlier? So, so he, you know, the women are found on March 16th. Uh, he takes polygraphs. He takes at least two in the first month, you know, in, in like April. I think the report's dated May 2nd. I know he's taken a couple at that point. I think he takes a couple more. So he's passed at least three. He's not taken to Chicago until the end of September for another one. So my, let's pause there. Why? Why are we taking him to Chicago? He's passed all his polygraphs, two or three at least. Because George pointed you know? him, right? I mean, pointed you know, right. at him. And so he, in, in, and then in September, I think they claim it was inconclusive. I'm not even sure they said he, he failed. Um, and then they, they bring him back to his house in LaSalle. They don't just let him go. They interrogate him that whole night. He still doesn't confess. He still maintains his innocence. And it's not until mid-November that they finally extract this confession after spending all of October trailing him, surveilling him, hounding him. So he has passed several polygraphs between mid-March and mid-November when he finally confesses. And to me, the whole thing to take him to Chicago was just a ruse to try to have a reason to claim he failed, to try to isolate him, to try to break him down. And I think one of the things that's most telling in the case is, you know, Chester testifies at a motion to suppress his confession and a trial. Then at a ride back from Chicago, Sheriff's Deputy William Dummett is threatening him with riding the Thunderbolt, which they all understood at the time. They mean you're going to get the electric chair. Dummett, when he's called to testify under oath, denies that. And incredibly, an assistant state's attorney who was in the car at the time, Craig Armstrong, to his credit, testified truthfully and said, yeah, Dummett did threaten Chester with riding the Thunderbolt several times. So my point of that is this whole investigation, when I heard that about Dummett, I don't trust anything Dummett has done because I know that not only did he threaten Chester with the electric chair, he lied about it under oath. So I don't trust anything this guy says. Well, and Dummett has a uh, a documented track record of perjuring. Uh, he's later uh, a convicted perjurer, and he had a reputation uh, for making evidence conveniently appear when a job needed to be done. And um, Chester also uh, said that Dummett made threats against his family, you know, that if you don't confess... Um, you know, violence will be visited upon your wife and kids. So it was, you know, 
beyond just personal violence to himself. He said that there was there was a, a kind of a blanket threat made to the Uyghur family. Um, one more question on this polygraph timeline was, according to Harlan, um, he's saying, and I correct me if I'm wrong, like in the, I think I was just trying to add it up through the documentary, right? So like he's saying when he, um, Chester is polygraphed, I think he's implying the first time that Steve comes out of that, like out of that polygraph and why does the sheet says he's the one I'm 100% sure. So yeah. How was Steve or yeah. How was Steve like, and not to mention like now we know Steve is getting some of the reward money for backing up Harlan kind of, I mean, Harlan thinks it's Chester out of the gate because Steve comes out. Why does a sheet from this first polygraph, but we're saying Chester passed these polygraphs. You know, what, what I'm unclear on, but maybe you know the answer to this. Um, I thought the whole point of taking Chester to Chicago is so John Reed himself, because it's the company is John Reed Associates. Yes. He and other polygraph guys, Steve Kindig worked for John Reed. Yeah. My understanding was Steve Kindig did the earlier polygraphs. Mm -hmm. I thought I could be wrong about this. Right. And I thought the whole point of going to Chicago was we're going to take it to like John Reed himself. He's yeah. going to do the polygraph in Chicago. So mm -hmm. this whole story, I've never seen any documents about this. Um, I've seen the part you're talking about, you know, this reference. I don't know what polygraph they are alleging that happens at because Chester passes all the initial polygraphs, you know, all the pre Chicago trip polygraphs. And then if they're saying that Steve comes out of the room in Chicago, my understanding was Steve didn't do it in Chicago. Again, Whitney, am I wrong about that? I don't uh, know. No, you're, you're correct. So Steve Kindig was dispatched down to the Star Rock Lodge and they set him up in cabin number one. And that sort of became his base camp. And so the story goes that, you know, he was interrogating um, or polygraphing, excuse me, Chester and Emil Bohm and, and uh, Art Askew. And, you know, just this, this, this cast of characters were coming through and being polygraphed. And when it got to Chester, that's when Kindig comes, you know, stumbling out of the, out of the cabin and goes, you know, white, you know, white as a sheet. So the story goes, says, you know, it's him, it's gotta be him. So to, you know, just, seal the deal then it's deemed appropriate to take him uh to take excuse me it's deemed appropriate to take chester um up to chicago where not only uh is he going to you know be polygraphed and interrogated by the man himself you know we're, we know the john reed technique but he's going to actually meet the man himself um and be subjected to the, the john reed technique personally on top of that um they also wanted chester apparently to sort of, they wanted that time in the car to be sort of, you know, a way to sweat him. That that drive up there would be sort of a time to sweat him and it would provide more opportunity for Dummett, you know, to, to get answers out of him. So that that's my understanding. Is and I haven't seen any documents, Whitney. I've seen no documents about Chester failing this polygraph and, and, and references to like, oh, he's the guy. And, you know, that's why we got to bring him to Chicago now. So uh, no, obviously my, the file's incomplete, but yeah, my understanding is uh, there's an eyewitness account from Harlan Warren. Oh, saying, well, that's convenient, right? So there's an eyewitness account from Harlan Warren. That's clearly Kendig steps yeah. out and is white as a sheet and said he's the guy, and then that gets reiterated in some memos back and forth between Craig Armstrong and and, and official channels, you know, saying well, it's got to be him. Though so on that note, I just want to point out that uh, if you are a nerd like me and you've spent hours reading through hundreds of pages of FOIA documents which are just all the handwritten notes that police took talking to people just chicken scratch pieces of paper of all the law enforcement interviews that took place with every tom dick and harry in the greater central illinois area like 13 different people have an underline next to their name with an asterisk where it going this has got to be the guy and right. and what i what i liken it to is basically like every time someone who was performing one of these interviews met someone they thought was kind of creepy. Well, this guy's a creep. He's got to have done it. But there's a big leap to be made. And this is why I, I sometimes am hesitant to be overly critical of George Spiros or to be overly critical of some of the people that are that are held out as potential suspects. Is There's a big, big leap from creepy guy. There's lots of creepy guys that never hurt anybody, right? There's a big difference between creepy guy and person who bludgeons three women to death. And just because someone is a creep doesn't mean they're a trip. Just because someone's a creep doesn't make them a homicidal maniac. And see, that's and, something and I, that always struck me is, is you can't ignore the nature of the injuries, you know, and that's something I talk about in this next episode. I mean, it's such, 
it's such a unique kind of killing the way the number of blows to the head, you know, they're not just killed, they're obliterated, you know, who does that and why? And with three different murder weapons. Can we ask that? Cause you talk yeah. about the finger and I, like there's twine that's cut. So was there a pocket knife or something else there? Like, I don't think there's three different murder weapons. I'm going to get into this in the next episode. Um, the camera, if you see, there's a picture of the camera laying in the snow. I mean, you haven't seen it yet. It's it's intact. You know, the camera, this little camera would have been. Oh, obliterated. If yeah. got the pictures from, is that the same camera that they'd there's, have? Like, there's a camera. Yeah. And then, you know, the binoculars can't do it. Um, yeah. The log, this article says there's a report. I haven't seen it. That says the law can't do it. Um, there is a report. So there's this guy, Bill Jansen. Have you heard about him? You probably haven't. Um Bill Jansen is this 24-year-old recent Michigan State college grad, criminology major. He's friends with somebody like in the Michigan State Police. They bring him in to be a fresh set of eyes. He's going to be starting law school in the fall. He spends a couple months at Starve Rock interviewing people, reading all the documents, trying to figure it out. And in mid-September, he issues a 40-page report. And we're going to be, you're going to have to listen to our next podcast episode. We're going to get into all this. It's going to be, it's my favorite episode by Ooh, far. We're subscribers. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so I've, I've tried to get the report. I've never seen it, but there are newspaper articles talking about it. And one of the things he says in the report is, in his opinion, the murder weapon has not been found. He favored a steel bar or a tire iron. All right. That made a lot of sense to me. I mean, when you've got fractured skulls, Mm-hmm. fractured jaws, you know, severed ear, neck, almost like head coming off the neck. It's not a camera and binoculars or this, this rotten log that makes sense. A, a weapon like that, you know? So there's so much more when you dig into the things he says in his report. Um, you know, he talks about it being a crime of revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, everything in his report, is something that is inconsistent with it ultimately being Chester Weger, you know? Yeah. Oh, so Chester yeah. Weger's on a break walking through the park with a tire iron. Is that yeah. the theory now? You know? Um, yeah. So throw- I could get into that for another hour right there. I want to throw in just a- another thought here. And uh, that when you read through all of the case files and, and the documents from the time, it, it's so apparent when you're a woman reading it. Um, I mean, hopefully it's apparent to anyone how um, how male centric this investigation is because there is this constant reference made this throughout the entire investigation to like who would do these who, who would do this to these three nice ladies they're nice church going ladies they couldn't have any enemy. there's this sort of just dismissal of them as like accidental victims because they're just nice ladies who would have anything against these nice ladies and, and I think for me, I, I almost find that to be a little bit offensive because, I mean, they're 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 three three dimensional beings, right? They're they're women who maybe they did have enemies. You know, I, I remember I mentioned it to my mom, and I said, "Well, they were three nice church ladies that supposedly had no enemies." My mom said, "Church ladies have the most enemies of all. You got to dig deeper." <laughs> and I think that is one of the great tragedies of of this um, of this investigation is there wasn't a lot of investigation done into them. Well, I said to Max, like, I was like, who looked at the husbands? Because why are the husbands not being? Now you're getting into it a little bit now. Now we're getting into it a little bit now. It's always the husband. (laughs) Well, I called you when you were watching the documentary and and that's what I was saying. I'm like, these husbands, these husbands, because calling And I know like, okay, it's not clear in the documentary. Was it a typo? Was it not a typo? Was it a conspiracy? Like, I don't want to shame the victim's families, the mafia, all of that gets dispelled in episode three. Right. So, but going back to, yeah, but did they look at the husbands? Like yeah. sure, we, we dispelled the conspiracies, but. So what, what I talk about in this next episode is um, Bill Jansen's report says the following things. Okay. Here's what we know. Miss Murphy's missing a fingertip. That's crazy. Why is she missing a fingertip? I mean, why she has soiled clothing. And when I first read that, I thought she soiled herself. No, Chester's interrogation. They're asking him questions like, did you shit on them? Did you take a piss on them? I mean, only she has soiled clothing. She has a vaginal injury, only her. So they're asking Chester, 
Did you kick any of them in the crotch? And then let me just go another step. Bill Jansen, not Andy Hale, Bill Jansen in his report says, oh, Mr. Murphy should be looked at to see if he had enemies in the Moline area. So Bill Jansen is specifically pointing out Mr. Murphy to see if he has enemies. And what I note in this podcast in episode five, only Miss Murphy is missing a finger, has soiled clothing, and has the vagina injury. You mean to tell me that's a coincidence? I don't think so. So I think there's something else going on here with premeditation, with the murder weapon, with the twine, with the way the crime scene was. It was staged to look like something it's not. If you wanted to, I mean, if the three women were found shot in the head in the canyon, you'd be like, oh, somebody executed these ladies. If you wanted to make it look like something it wasn't, right? The only reason you stage that, they're not sexually assaulted. So to me, clearly, it is to throw it off. It's deception. It is staged. And it's so clear, like their legs are kind of spread apart as snow angels. The pants are pulled down. I mean, who does that? Uh, I think the person who does that or the people who do it are people trying to make it look like something it's not. And I also think clearly the much more persuasive case is it's a multiple offender crime because three victims hauled up into a cave, the number of blows, the time it would take for one person to do that, all these things. I mean, I could go on and on and on, uh, but I talk about this all in episode five and it's my favorite episode because it's what I think makes the most sense. Well, you well, left us on such a cliffhanger. I was listening to it this morning and I was like, Max, I'm on such like a cliffhanger. I need to yeah. know what's going on next. So I feel a little bit more relieved with that because I was like, I need to know the next theory of what was yeah. going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was going to add to that pile though too, as you mentioned, like the staging of it being a sexual assault and to add to that, like um, that it could be premeditated when other crimes are staged, right? Like as a sexual assault, a lot of times it has to do with humiliation and it's like a revenge based crime. So it's a premeditated right. crime. And right. those ladies like at that time, like that's a very graphic scene for them yeah. to stage and played like that. I just don't, it doesn't make sense to me. Just take, take the random killing, right? Whoever that might be, George Spiros, Gerald Nevke, whoever. So if there's a random encounter, okay. First of all, why do you got to kill three people? Why do you have to obliterate their faces with a hundred blows? Why do you got to drag them up into a cave? Why do you got to then take their clothes down? Why do you got to cut off Miss Murphy's finger? Why do you got to defecate and urinate on her? And then why do you also got to kick her in the crotch? Okay, like that's random. Like, oh, I just happened to run into these ladies and uh, I lost my mind and decided to kill them all. You know, oh, and I also had some kind of like tire iron with me at the time. You know, I <laughs> mean, like. That makes no sense. The, the the premeditated multiple offender case to me makes a lot more sense. I could be wrong, but that's right. that's the most that's the most persuasive way I look at the overall totality of the crime scene. Quick question, just because I don't want to be yeah. factually wrong. Was Miss Murphy's husband the one that quickly remarries, or is that one of the other? Husbands? He no, it's Mr. Murphy remarries. Um, <laughs> apparently, I think it was to, it was two years after. After the uh, his wife was murdered, um, so it wasn't like that. You know, I think there was a typo. They know. Yeah. But let's. But here's the thing: he did remarry to his secretary. That, that is fact. You know, so draw from that what you want. Maybe it's something. Maybe it's nothing. I don't know. I I will say I Andy has done a, a solid job of of dragging me over in the, in the premeditation camp. However, I'm just throwing this in there as just just because I find it interesting. When I was kind of barking up for a, a time, the George Spiros tree, kind of on the heels of Sandra Housby's, um, you know, story, I was building out a Spiros family tree uh, to kind of figure out, you know, who who are all the players in his life? Because his alibi for that afternoon was that he was visiting his mother, who lived with her two sisters in Evanston, Illinois. So he couldn't have committed the murders on that afternoon because he said he was driving there to visit them. He was estranged from his mother. She left when he was a young boy. He'd then been sent to military school where he was told to channel all of his rage into boxing. Okay. As I'm building the family tree, I'm dragging pictures and I went through old yearbooks and I found some images and I put some images up on my, my board and I thought I was looking at the victims. And what I was looking at was George Spiros' mother and two sisters, but they 
they had such a striking resemblance that that just kind of caught me for a moment that maybe, maybe, I still think Andy's argument is stronger. Don't get me wrong. I think Andy's argument is much stronger, but it just caught me for a strange moment that if George Spiros had mommy issues and here are three women wandering through the wood by his house on the same day, he's going to go visit his estranged mother and her two sisters. And these women have a striking resemblance to these three women he's about to go see that day that maybe there was some deferred rage don't know but that still doesn't account for the fingertip and them being in a cave right it's it's not enough but it's just something that has sort of has a creepy factor that has stuck with me there's really nothing in the documents that i've seen that you know all i know about george spiros he's a lodge owner's son i've heard these stories anecdotally that he's a strange guy but here's the but they are, you know, they found red Orlon fibers on the victims, mm-hmm. okay? That was kind of a new fiber at the time. It was an artificial fiber. The only documents I have seen where they are taking samples, fiber samples, are from George Spiros. He's got several sweaters that they take a red fiber from. So my point is, why, right? I mean, like, George Spiros is the last guy law enforcement wants to be the murderer. Like Nick Sparrows is friends with all those guys. Like they don't want it to be George Spiros, but yet they are collecting red fibers from him for some reason. And I think there's more to the George Spiros story. We just don't know the backstory because they're not taking red fibers from him. If he's just some random guy who passed the polygraph, like everybody else, there had to be a reason that they thought those red fibers could have come from him. Yeah. I will say before we kind of close out this conversation, Max had had her, her theory. And then Whitney just kind of went off on her theory. Um, I had, this yeah, what are your theories? I want to hear them. You've heard my theory. It's kind of, well, it's not, it's not my theory. My theory is now it's more like the, like the husband kind of has always sat in my head, but um, I was on the phone with my mother and I was discussing this case and, and she was like, yeah, but like, what about, um, she was like, I was talking about how, how can one man hold off, you know, like three women, like that just doesn't make sense. And she goes, but Richard Speck did it. And I was like, Richard Speck. So I start looking good. at Richard Speck. Yeah. Same good example. Time, Chicago, yeah. Illinois. What was yep. going on in Illinois at this point in time? Late 1960s. Yep. Yeah. Sure. Late 66 was when he yeah. um, killed those eight women in yeah. a nursing or not, they were in nursing school. And one of the nurses had hid underneath one of the yeah. beds. You could account for a famous case. Happened. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And so then I was like, well, where was he during 1960? And it looks as though he was um, working at, in Dallas, Texas at the time at like a seven up facility. So, but I was like, it's just, no, so you know what? Here. I had somebody reach out to me. I got to go back and find these notes. I had somebody yeah. reach out to me to tell me that I should look at Richard Speck because they claimed mm-hmm. he was in the area. Because well, he time. still had family in the area. So I yeah. was like, well, maybe he was yeah. working for the seven up. It's, it's funny your mom maybe. mentioned that. It's funny if I mentioned that because when I think about when I when I make this argument about like one person doing a random multiple killing, the case I have thought about is Richard Speck because he killed how many nursing students? Seven or eight? Eight? Yeah. I mean, now those were all they were all stabbed, I think. Um, Mm. um, But you're right. I mean, so the point is, yeah, there are people out there who do crazy things, kill multiple people. It's sick and it's hard to fathom. But it does happen, but it's funny that your mom brought up. That's a very good example. Richard I was Speck surprised case. it hadn't even been brought up in like the docu series or in uh, in your podcast yet because it, it was just yeah. so close to the area too. That was what I couldn't get over either. I was like close to the area, same time frame, kind of sort of. So that's I mean that's just another like off tangent of you know the main part is is there's so many different theories that we have that you look at it and you're just like never made sense that Chester went to jail for this. Like that's kind of the bottom line of like the whole thing, unfortunately. Well, I'm hoping that the DNA uh, shed some light on this. Um, you know, I, I, if there's no Chester Uyghur DNA on any of those items, uh, that's the first step. And then the second step is, can we match it to other people? Cause we have, we have Gerald Nemke's hairs. We have George Spiros's hairs, we are you potentially... able to, are you going to like go down that route um, to try to like close the case? Well, close the case. Yeah. Down? I mean, I think I got to kind of take it one step at a time. So uh, I'm hoping we get to a point where there's a step two. Um, there's also a step one where when this D- DNA comes back now, and if it's not Chester Uyghurs, uh, it can be submitted automatically to databases. Um, but, you know, you might not have had people who had DNA in those databases, you know, 
This is 1960. Mm. Um, but if it comes back not to Chester Uyghur, um, and that we know, and if I'm still getting resistance to, you know, people thinking he's, you know, he's still guilty, which, you know, it's like, at what point do you finally give in? Uh, I would look to try to match it up to George Spiros, Gerald Memke, and people like that, because if you get a match to them, then I think it's pretty powerful evidence that they were involved, obviously, right? So you are um, Stanley? Pardon Stanley? me? Do you have Stanley's DNA, too? There mm-hmm. isn't DNA. Uh, so here's I can't thing. remember if Stanley Tucker, you said Stanley Tucker? Yeah. I can't remember if there's hair from him or not. I don't know the answer I to that. I don't believe that there is, and I think, but there's, this is where bioethics comes into play. There is a whole lot less privacy today than there has ever been before because anyone who's done Ancestry.com or 23andMe has submitted their DNA. And if anyone you are related to has committed a crime, you share alleles. So even if your DNA is not in the database, there's a chance your third cousin did take a home test. And so that's opening a lot of doors for comparing DNA because let's say the DNA comes back and it doesn't match anyone. We've even considered it's, you know, matches to someone, you know, Marilyn Smith living in the greater Moline area. Well, who did she have that was a relative who maybe, right, could be connected in some way. So I think that's... It's like, I'll be gone. I'll be gone again in the dark. Wasn't that how they kind of matched it Uh, up? I'll be gone in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, That's exactly right. That's how they found the golden state killer, right? Is that Mm -hmm. they, um, they connected to his third cousin. And uh, do we have time for just one last weird theory? Well, and one quick thing, that's how, that's what we just said about Jerry Nemke's wife's. That's Mm -hmm. how they found her killer was through ancestry and through the genealogy and the DNA testing that they found of Mm. relatives. Wow. I throw one one last weird element here. There's a lot of weird things about this story, but I think one of the weirdest, most kind of cinematic conspiracy theories um, revolving around this case uh, comes from a, a report taken by a, a detective named Mark Gibson in the early 1980s in Chicago. He claims that he was uh, called to... Um, uh, is it, to a, a hostile, I'll, I'll, I'll avoid too many details here, but Mark Gibson was a detective in Chicago in the early 80s. And he said that he was called to take a bedside confession from a woman dying in the ICU. And this woman was an older woman who was uh, rather hysterical and said she had to get it off her chest that um, when she was younger, they were just kids. They were just having fun. And in, uh, in, in Utica State Park, they dragged the bodies. They were just trying to scare them and things got out of hand and they ended up dragging the bodies. And then her daughter tells him to leave. He takes the statement, he files it. It's lost somewhere in the archives of the Chicago PD. What's interesting about this is that, you know, Mark Gibson has said uh, he was, he was, he was discovered by Donna Kelly, the, 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 the defender of, uh, of Chester Weger uh, back in the early 2000s at a dinner party of all places. And he starts to tell the story and she hears it and says, well, there's no Utica State Park, but there's Dark Rock State Park in Utica and dragging the bodies is an interesting detail. And this woman says, we were just kids. We were just having fun. We just thought we'd scare them. Now that could very well just be a woman who read a newspaper article who's got ICU delirium. However, some of the evidence that has been sent back for testing are some cigarette butts that were found in the cave. And one of them has lipstick on it. And the three women didn't smoke. So there's also this weird world, right? Another rabbit hole. Here we go. Another rabbit hole. Another Mm -hmm. rabbit hole. And I just think that, to me, is one of the weirdest elements of this story. Because uh, Mark Gibson said, you know, those deathbed confessions are something that only happened in the movies. Never really happens. Nobody nobody in the ICU or the ER says, hey, get me a cop because I need to give a confession. And yet... One took place and it was this delirious ranting. Oh, and I left out the most interesting detail that apparently as the daughter of this woman was telling the cops to get out because it was distressing her mother, the woman said, oh, that poor man. So who was the poor man she was referring to? Are we talking about Chester who goes away for the crime or was the body they dragged the poor man? Who knows, right? Look at it. That's. We've talked about this case for, I mean, how long we've been talking here now for, you know, all this time. Almost and we, we, <laughs> we haven't even touched on the surface. We have just like, we just started. It's like, this is not even an appetizer. 
you know, we haven't even had an appetizer. You're just having like a pre-appetizer drink is where we're at. So that's how Seriously. I look at it. So for our viewers, if you want to hear more from Andy and Whitney, because there is so much more to this case, make sure you're heading over to their Star of Rock Murders podcast with Andy Hale um, and checking them out. Now, I saw you kind of when do you air your do you have a day of the week? Every Thursday. Every Thursday. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, and you guys are already ahead of us. Like right now while we're filming, we film in advance, Max and I. So I'm super jealous because you guys don't have to wait like I do, you know, for episode like five and six. Yeah, to come yeah. Out, so. um, but yeah, you have a great podcast. I think what you're doing is great. Something Max and I are super passionate about is um, wrongful convictions. Did you have anything you want to leave with our viewers or with ourselves of what we can do to help those that are wrongfully yeah. convicted? Well, I, what I say at the end of each podcast is, you know, um, not only are we interested in hearing about anybody that's got information about the Star of Rock murders, but also about somebody who's wrongfully convicted. If anybody out there knows somebody who they think is wrongfully convicted, reach out to us on our AndyHillPodcast.com website. I'd love to hear about it. Check it out. Um, I'm always looking. I think I've been a lawyer now for over 30 years, and I think as, as I get older and my time gets more precious, I want to spend it on the things that I think are the most valuable and rewarding. And I think there's nothing greater a lawyer can do than to try to help somebody get out of prison who's innocent. Um, and so I would love to hear from anybody out there who has a case where they think somebody was wrongfully convicted. I, I will definitely uh, be all ears. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for being on with us and talking about this case. We really appreciate your time um, and all the details. Really enjoyed it as well. But, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot more to talk about and um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. If you ever want to come back on, please feel free. Yeah, we should, you know, let's see how things go. I would love to come back on uh, anytime you want to have us on. I'll come back on tomorrow. Um, <laughs> check out, you know, I don't know if you know about the, the TV show I had for about five years in Chicago called Case Files Chicago. Um, Google casefileschicago.com. Okay. I had, I had a local TV show here in Chicago. It was on for about five years and we profiled every week two unsolved murders. And then we would, have a we would have a detective talk about the crime mm -hmm. we would have family members talk about the victim we would reenact the crime and then we would have a tip line and we try to solve the crime so if you go to that website uh it's almost like it looks like humans in new york it's just we've got all these cases we've worked on mm -hmm. um a lot of true crime cases that we're trying to solve i think you'll find it interesting yeah chicago.com Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andy and Whitney. And um, yeah, best of luck with your podcast. And yeah. likewise with you. Love your podcast. Yeah, you appreciate it. I just sure. next time I need to have some wine on my end, though. That's you yes, know, we do. <laughs> totally unfair. You're the only two drinking, and we're just sitting here, like you know. Oh, we need this. Oh my gosh. <laughs> thank you again. Yeah, thanks for having us. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I know for myself, since transitioning to a working from home environment, the importance of taking care of your own mental health. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Now, it's not a crisis line and it's not self-help. It is professional therapy done securely online. The service is available for clients worldwide and you can log into your account anytime, day or night to message your therapist. It's more affordable than traditional in-person therapy and financial aid is available. You can visit their website and read other clients' testimonials that are posted daily. Visit betterhelp.com slash ITT, that's better H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. And for listeners of Innocent Told Tipsy, you can go to their website and get an additional 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash ITT. That's betterhelp.com slash ITT. So um, there's new DNA evidence coming out in this case, and that's going to be released about mid-April. So if you want to know what the DNA evidence, like what comes of it, definitely make sure you're checking out Andy and Whitney's podcast. I'm sure they're going to be updating us on what all of that entails. But keep an eye out. Like this DNA evidence might exonerate Chester. Like this is huge. Um, so make sure you're keeping an eye out for it. Um, but until next week, Andy's podcast airs every Thursday. Make sure you go and check the podcast out. Um, we'll be back next Wednesday, but until then, how was the wine max? Oh, I love this. This is $15. Definitely one of my top, top fives under 20. I love this one. It was great. I would buy it. Actually, I did buy it again, but <laughs> it was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed it. Till next week. Cheers. Media Production.
Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.